comes that lonely feeling knocking on my door. I've known that lonely feeling many times before. What am I to do? Whoa, now that I've lost you, whoa, I'm about to sit here and cry, wondering why I used to be so happy when you were around. But then that lonely feeling sent me tumbling down. Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Dean Ford and the Gaylords, that lonely feeling way back from 1965. That's because I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Junior Campbell here. Junior Campbell, uh, synonymous for his time in Marmalade, but for a remarkable solo career as well and uh, much broader work in the music industry. This is part one of a two-part podcast because we've got so much to cover here. First of all, a huge welcome, Junior. Well, thank you very much, and I think we should stop now, because after that build-up, I can't, get, I can't get any better. I'm not sure about that, because the, the music the music that we've got is, is just remarkable and is, is up there with, with any act in the 60s and 70s, so the proof will be in the pudding here today. And uh, I don't know if many people know this, but the roots of Marmalade were in Dean Ford and, and the Gaylords. Do you want to describe... Well, maybe how you got into music and then how that evolved into the Gaylords and yeah, sure. you can then cover a bit of Marmalade later. Yeah, sure. I was born in 47, 1947. So um, by the time I was 10, sort of 12 years of age, uh, radio 
in the UK was beginning to, you know, we were hearing Presley and we were hearing the Everly Brothers and um, and Jerry Lee and people like that. And our house had always been well steeped in music. Um, my paternal line uh, is Italian. So my grandfather, Alfredo Cancellari, changed his name, but that's another story, passed down the love of music to my father. And my father was a opera nut and uh, he had a big radiogram. And we always had music, uh, not only just opera, but classical music and popular music in the house, always. And we had a little upright piano, quintessentially always out of tune as they were. And um, my two brothers um, were George and Fred. They were, you know, a fair bit older than me. And uh, so they they knew about people at that time. They were buying records by Fats Domino and uh, Eddie Fisher and um, things like that. So there was always stuff playing. So I always had a real interest I had a paper round, and uh, the first time I ever really stopped in my tracks was when I heard. And there's so many people cite this cite this record, but the only the first time I ever really stopped in my tracks was on my paper round, and I was at this woman's house delivering the Friday papers to get the money, and I could hear Heartbreak Hotel in the background. And I thought, what is that? And really, um, it was it was a huge moment in my life. Um, so that's the basis of how music was always um, around. Um, we used to play football. We lived in a, a, one of the new post-war developments just outside Glasgow, which was brilliant. And uh, we had a little green and we would play football, etc. There was a guy there who had, his, I think his brother, similar to a Pat Fairley story, which I can tell later, but his brother had come back from the Merchant Navy and he had brought back a guitar. And this guy... Uh, Jim, I think his name was, he was on the green with this guitar and, and he looked so late 50s rock and roll cool, if you know what I mean. And he was banging out his three chords and I sort of said to him, because I was a, probably two or three years younger, and I said, can I have a go? So he let me have a go and I think I even borrowed it. And then I said to my dad, you know, I'd love to have a guitar. So we bought a little uh, acoustic for 10 guineas from um, Gollum's Music Shop in Glasgow. And that was the beginning. So I carried on. Uh, the Everly Brothers appeared and that was it again, an, another quintessential moment. And I emulated everything they did. And uh, then the shadows arrived. And of course, that was for any young guitar, potential guitar player in, in uh, the UK at that time. They were just something else. So um, that that really was that. And um, very briefly, my mother was convinced I was a better guitar player, even although I was 13 years of age. She was convinced I was a better guitar player than Hank Marvin, as all mothers do. And uh, she worked in a, a shop in Glasgow, and there was a boy who worked with her who had a, it was beginning a little band, a little group, and he played bass. And, and my mum said, you should listen to my junior. He's brilliant. So um I was invited along, and uh, it was actually on my 14th birthday, on the 31st of May, 1961, that I met Pat Fairley and uh, this guy, Billy Johnson, and a couple of other guys, and they decided they had called themselves the Gaylords after um, a Chicago street gang. It was sort of pretty cool at the time, but of course, now it has totally different connotations, but um, then it was pretty cool, and that was it. So the Gaylords started. We built up a pretty good reputation uh, locally, first of all, East End Glasgow, and then Glasgow, and then Scotland in general, and... Um, you know, various members came and went, and uh, Pat Fairley and I, uh, we saw Dean Ford at the Barland Ballroom in Glasgow. 
uh, a funny little guy, wide ears. He looked like the Scottish Cup. Hmm. <laughs> he looked like you could have lifted his head off, you know, and held it above your head. But and um, he had huge big hands as well. And all these kids that were hanging around the stage, you know, holding his trousers at the bottom and stuff. And he was singing um, Roy Orbison's uh, In Dreams, and it was just just something about it. So we persuaded him to join us. Uh, and eventually, Nori Palmer, uh, looking for the new Beatles from Glasgow, came up from EMI. Nori produced Cliff Richard and The Shadows and everybody else. And he uh, invited us to um, EMI in London for a, an audition, which we passed. So we signed a contract and uh, we did, um, I think, four singles as Dean Ford and the Gaylords uh, with EMI, Columbia EMI, the, one, the first one you've just played. That was uh, that lonely feeling. That was the B side, I think, to the second single, and um, that was a great. I really like that record even now. It was written by um, the boys from the Ivy League, uh, John Carter and Ken Lewis, and uh, that that sort of is what we sounded like then. So that's that was the foundation, and we decided to move to London, and we were skint, no gigs, nothing. But the Tremolos had seen us. Uh, we'd appeared with them in Scotland a couple of times and they recommended us to um, Starlight Artists, which was a big agency run by Peter Walsh. Uh, and they had various acts. Uh, and uh, so we signed with them and that was the best thing that ever happened. We um, we just carried on, built up our reputation, kept on going until um, that summer of, I think it was 1966, when London was... Uh, the place to be, and suddenly Dean Ford and the Gaylers didn't sound um, mm. very cool any longer, if you know what I mean, because all the Cliff Richards and the Shadows, mm. Shane Fenton and the Fenton, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, all them sort of monocles for bands were a bit old hat, so um, our manager came up with the brilliant idea <laughs> of calling us the Marmalade. So uh, that was it. So that was the, that. I hope that covers that stage. It does, and um, I think the first the Marmalade single just towards the end of that summer '66 uh, period was "It's All Leading Up to Saturday Night," and that was a Jeff Stevens song. How, how did that song come to you in the group? Was it just presented to you as this is? We think you should record this from management, or did you have a hand in choosing what were the material? I mean, ultimately, we did have a hand in it, but don't forget, these days, it was a totally different scenario. You signed a very tight contract, uh, short term, probably six months or maybe maximum one year with a record company, and you had to record three singles. And what happened is that all the writers of the time used to take all the songs around all the record companies, and, and Jeff, notably, who had written them, um, or was about to write Winchester Cathedral, he thought that would have been a good one for us, and we thought... The problem is then we didn't have time to change our mind about anything because we were our agency was very hard working and we were just working all the time, literally every day of the week and spread all over the UK and um, Holland as well. So um, we just we did that one as well and you know that was it. <laughs>
wasn't that long after that that you and the group released I See the Rain, but that was, importantly, a, a song of your own? Well, absolutely, and that's where the um, that's where the the mood changed uh, between the record company and us in terms of they were then Mike Smith, the producer who was enormously successful at CBS. He had the Tremors, he had us. He produced the Love Affair, Everlasting Love. He had so many records. I think he had about four of us in the top five at one time. But um, Mike had always uh, had also previously worked at Decca, and he he had been involved in Billy Fury's um, Halfway to Paradise, and all these huge records from Decca. So he was, you know, he was a great guy, and I've always considered him to be my mentor in terms of studio technique. And Mike could see the potential, I think, in the band at that time, and um, notwithstanding the, the bunch of grapes. The pub immediately below CBS Studios. Um, he quite liked going in there. He, he used to just go out the door and say, "Oh, listen, you know, do what you want to do. Just make whatever it is. Make make sure it's good." And um, I had come up with them. Um, I see the rain predominantly, and um, Dean wrote the uh, psychedelic sort of verse lyric to it. And uh, you know, we we recorded that, and um, that was more in keeping with what we were sort of doing at the time. And um, I remember the, the the session distinctly. I mean, you know when you've got something you think is a bit different or a bit special. And um, there was a guy we knew in Scotland, press guy we had known, Alan McDougall, lovely guy. He suddenly turned up at the studio right mid-session and he brought Graham Nash in from the Hollies because there was a bit of a buzz going around at about the band at the time. And um, Graham came in and he loved the song and, and he made a few suggestions I tried to get him to sing the high part on the on the chorus with us, but he he said no, I can't because if I get sussed, the record company won't be very happy. So, um, but it all helped, and we actually thought this is it. We're going to, we're really going to crack it. We had great um, respect from our peers on the record. We had um, a lot of really great praise. Uh, the most famous of all being Jimi Hendrix saying it was you know the best record of '67, and he did say it because I remember reading. Mm. You know that was great. Uh, it was a hit in Holland, a big, big hit in Holland. Uh, but here, nothing. So um, very disappointing. Jimi Hendrix actually went to see you and the band live. Yeah, I mean, uh, during this period, one of the reasons for the for the this was the the beginning of the where we really started to well, we did we lit the touch paper. We were invited to play at the infamous uh, Marquee Club in London, Wardle Street, uh, to support uh, a very young Pink Floyd. The CM Le Play days, I think it was, and um, they did. They had a light show, and they had, it was it was a very psychedelic sort of performance. But we were a hard hitting sort of Motown uh, soul come, you know, psychedelic rock and roll band. And and to be honest, we 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 blew them. You know what I mean? Everyone said at the time, so much so that um, we were put on again two weeks later with with the next uh, new wave. Um, favourite, which is a London band called The Action, and literally we did the same with them as well. So um, John G, uh, who's the manager of the, the marquee, he again thought he could see something, so he, he said, listen, I'm going to offer you something I don't offer to many people, but how would you like to do a residency at the marquee and we'll have people supporting you? And we thought, Jesus. So that was it. So consequently, we used to do 
most of the time, sort of every every Tuesdays or every Thursdays, we'd we'd be at the marquee in the great sort of Carnaby Street, London time. You know, when all the tourists were coming in, and everyone would come to come and see us. All the bands. I meet so many people who came to see us, and you know, and um, Dave Gilmore. I think he came and saw us. But um, Jimmy came in a couple of times. Uh, he just stood very quietly. He was a lovely guy, but very very quiet. And uh, he stood uh, at the back. Uh, with Noel Redding, who was his bass player, who became very friendly with him, our bass player, Graham Knight. And, uh, you know, he liked the band. So, um, you know, at the time, if you think about it, I mean, I suppose it's a bit of, like if you're a young footballer and um, Kenny Dalglish comes and watches you. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a bit a, a nice, nice feeling. Congregating right 
Mamled's next single, Man in a Shot, which again was self-penned, didn't get into the... No, I didn't get anywhere. Yeah. Didn't get any- Again, that was uh, an idea of mine, which I, again, all to do with that era, you know, psychedelia and everything else. It's, it's got backward uh, tapes on it, and it's sawing sounds and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's, a, it's an amateur song, but it's, it's very well put together, I think. Um, Keith Mansfield did uh, a string quartet for us on it at my request, and also two French horns, which is the beginning. Because don't forget, McCartney and Lennon were doing all this with the Beatles, you know. I think Pepper had just come out, and all these other sounds were being at, added in a modern way, rather than the, the sort of Cliff Richard, Matt Monroe era, where, where they had orchestral stuff, but it was pretty much mainstream. Uh, George Martin had, because uh, Paul had heard the horn or a trumpet or a clarinet sound on Penny Lane and it was George who guided him and said uh, George Martin who guided him and said listen we'll try this back the trumpet which they pulled a guy in and it's become one of the most famous of all time so we were in our own amateur little way we were trying to explore as well and that was the reason we, we asked Keith to do that great reviews, a lot of people liked the record, stiffed totally. The lack of chart success then meant that the record company were, were keen to get something that was in the centre of uh, ma- mainstream pop then for the, for the next song? Quite naturally. Even then, there were there were the bean counters who, because um, irrespective of your notoriety and how people feel about you and, and everyone saying this, that, and next thing, complimentary mostly, there is still a, a bottom line. And I think um, the bean counters at then CBS records were all looking at it and saying, listen, this is all very well, but, you know, we're spending money on, on this band and we need to get a return. So Mike uh, was having, at that particular time, was having huge success um, with the um, with the Tremolos. I think Silence is Golden had just come off number one, or certainly around that time. But he had been offered various songs, and um, I, I distinctly remember he played me because in the studio at CBS in New Bond Street, the very old studio, which is no longer exists, there was a little side room and it had a record player. And he played me this demo of this song and it was um, Robert Knight singing uh, Everlasting Love. He said, I can see something in this. And I said, I really like it. I said, but that's, you know, that's not really the sort of thing we do. So that was it. So, of course, then he gave it to Stevie Ellis and The Love Affair and <laughs> and they got to number one with Keith Mansfield's fantastic um, arrange, orchestral arrangement. So that seemed to be a path that maybe we should consider, as Mike very diplomatically said to me. He said, because really we're running out of options. He used to call me Wally. Everybody calls me Wally. So he said, uh, what do you think? And that, you know, and the boys and we all said, well... Again, we were working all the time, so we didn't really have time to change anything. So there was a Scottish, uh, very famous Scottish songwriter called Bill Martin, uh, whose partner was Phil Coulter. And Bill um, had been a pal of ours for years and years and years. We used to do their demos for them in um, KPM Studios in uh, Denmark Street uh, because we we were tight and we could do things quickly. And... um, we demoed things. We even demoed congratulations, I seem to remember. But um, about six months before that, Bill had asked us to come into, Graham and I, to come into the studio and help uh, do some vocal backing harmonies on this song he was doing for another Glasgow band called The Pathfinders, who had a guy called Ian Clues. Clues, he was a great character. 
singing on it. So Graham and I went in, and it was Loving Things. The song was uh, Loving Things, written by uh, Archie Stroke and I think uh, Jeff Loring. So we knew the song, and what happened is that Mark Bill had said to Mike Smith, our CBS producer, that's a hit. You want to really look at that. So this magical moment when it was Time's Up for the Marmalade at CBS, Mike said, why don't we try that? We'll get Keith in, more or less try and recreate a formula that seems to be successful and see what happens. So we had, to be honest with you, Jason, we had no option. Yeah. We, we weren't make, we were working all the time, but we certainly weren't making fortunes. You know, we were coping with life in London. We're all still living together in a flat in uh, North London. So um, we, we went for it. And uh, in very many ways, thank God we did. And I still think it's a terrific record. I think it's a great, great pop record for the time. And every time I hear it now on the radio, if I'm passing it, it always, but always makes me smile. It shows the strength of the arrangement because I I recall that the grassroots kind of just replicated that arrangement and then had a hit back in the US. That's right. Well, the story is that I forget the guy's name, the singer Rob Sundarar. No doubt you of grill. That's right. Apparently he was in London during the one of the Carnaby Street summers of 67, 68. And uh, well, it must have been 68 because he heard the record and just thought, I'm going to take that back and pirate it. And that's exactly what they did. A lot of people get it the other way around. They think they had recorded it first before we got it, but that's simply not true.
And then after Wait For Me, Marianne, which had a similar feel, um, a Howard Blakely song, there's the, the huge success of Obladi Oblada, and, and many groups in the 60s had hits with covers of Beatles songs that were kind of album tracks. How, how did that happen? Uh, well, there's a story, if you like, within a story. <clears throat> Again, um, Love and Things had been a really big hit. Away from me, Marianne had been a had been a really big radio hit, but it never quite. I think it got to twenty nine or thirty. So we were then looking for the next follow up single. Bearing in mind again, we were always working, always, always working, and um, we got the the office. John Salter at Starlight Artists, our agency and the Tremors agency. He got a call from Dick James' uh, office, who was. Um, the publisher of Beatles Publishing Company, Northern Song, and he said, I've got a song for the boys and um, they should hear it. So um, I seem to remember it was Pat Fairley and Graham Knight uh, went to uh, Dick James Music and he pulled out this, funnily enough, a white label and uh, he, he played it. And he didn't say anything, just played it. And right away, the boys, you know, the Beatles, said, yeah. And um, literally, it was it was one of them, well, actually, it is. And, and they want you to have this. They think this would be really good for you to record, you know, as a single prior to um, the White Album actually coming out. So you would have a bit of a... So we thought, brilliant. And he said, it will be totally exclusive to you. So, you know, there was a lot of, it almost started a war because um, the Tremolas were touring South America with Peter Walsh at the time. And when they found out we were going to, Mike Smith wanted to record this at CBS very quickly. But again, we were working in the north of England and uh, we got telegrams. In fact, I've still got them somewhere. One from Peter Walsh saying, under no circumstances should you cover up a Beatles track. It's the kiss of death. And the Trems even with them saying, come on, boys, you know, don't do that. That's a, that's a kiss of death. I think they had recorded uh, Good Day Sunshine about three years earlier. And um, so there was that side of it. And then there was our side of it. Well, what do you think? So anyway, we get we came back <laughs> overnight on a chartered plane from north of England near Newcastle. We, we couldn't get back because the weather was bad, but enough to be able to fly. We chartered a plane, flew to Elstree, got some kit hired, got to CBS studios, and we recorded Obladi Obladan overnight in, I think, about two or three hours. And in places I can tell you it sounds like it. Um, and by the morning, Keith had come in uh, with an arrangement, uh, which he'd been given the, the demo. And uh, he came in with an arrangement for the horns and it was done and dusted. I think we started recording at some 11 o'clock at night, finished at seven in the morning. And it was mixed and ready to go at 10 o'clock in the shop and actually in the shops the following Friday. And I think that was from a Tuesday. So, and then it turned out that dear old Dick James, who had offered this exclusive record to us, had given it to nine other acts, oh, including including the Bedrocks, who did a really great version of it. Very sort of authentic, nothing like the Beatles, but very authentic sort of... Yeah, they were a, a black band from Leeds. That's right. Yeah, and, and it was a really good, a really, really good version. But I suppose uh, it was weighted against them. We were the, you know, the young sort of polished pop white act and um, the radio airways loved it. And, uh, and of course... You know, we had made a bet with him, Stuart Henry, the great, lovable DJ who's unfortunately not no longer with us, that if we got in number one, we would do Top of the Pops and Kilts, and that's what happened. But in actual fact, 
That would have been 53 years ago this week. It was released very late in the year, wasn't it, in 68? That's right, and it was number one the first in the new year of 69. But in many ways, um, anyone in the UK of an age who remembers the Marmalade only seem to remember that, which is a bit of a disappointment to us because we did far better records that had yeah. far less impact in the UK. It's a mixed blessing, isn't it? Because it kind of overshadows, but then it it also gave life to Marmalade for, for a number of years with the record company standing, etc. Absolutely. The only, um, the, it, well, it didn't, in lots of ways, it was, it was, for them it was a problem because... Yeah. No doubt we'll speak about it with a couple of uh, follows up, uh, follow-ups to Obladi Oblada. And um, then uh, the contract termination came up anyway in terms of um, the actual dates written on it. So CBS, they offered us, uh, I don't like talking about money, but don't forget, um, they off- this was 1969 and they offered Peter Walsh £75,000 advance for us to uh, renew our contract with CBS. And we couldn't believe it. Money like that back then was just crazy. You know, you just didn't do that. And uh, we were saying to Peter, fantastic. He said, no, it's not. He said, it's not enough. We said, what? He said, it's not enough. And uh, Dick Rowe came in from Decca, and I think we signed Decca for 110 grand. Wow. I mean, nowadays it sounds a lot of money, but not quite a lot of money. But back then, I promise you, that was a load of dough. But they got the re- they got all their money back with the very first release, which no doubt we'll touch on later. We will. Uh, j- just to close the uh, what we're discussing about Obladi Oblada in in the mid eighties, you actually got to talk with Paul McCartney briefly ab- about that song, <laughs> your version, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, I think that this I think this story will be on my epitaph. <laughs> uh, no, it was just it was sort of one of them things because we had um, it's one of these things that. That you can use the phrase "lest we forget," but sometimes we forget just how much impact those guys had, you know, in terms of music and contribution to uh, British music and worldwide music culture. So they've always been big heroes to me, always, and uh, particularly Paul, because I think he's a master magician when it comes to music, personally. Mm. Um, I know there's a school, Lennon and McCartney, and I was very much in the McCartney until I saw the recent uh, Get Back documentaries. And now it's um, Lennon was something else, clearly as well. But anyway, um, during a, a much later period, I was living in Sunningdale, Ascot, Berkshire, and um, Tittenhurst Park, which was the house that belonged to John Lennon, where he'd written things like Imagine and, and are famously seen in the, in the early music videos when he performed Imagine with the white piano. That's actually Tittenhurst Park. And um, I believe what happens is that when the Beatles split up, the house was part of the Beatles estate for some reason, or I don't really know how it works. I suspect I do, but I wouldn't divulge it here. But anyway, um, Ringo then took over um, Tittenhurst Park and he moved there with his uh, wife, uh, Maureen and his children, and um, it had a studio. John had a four-track in there, but Ringo, I think, changed. No, he had an eight-track, and I think Ringo moved it up to a 16-track. And um, it was sitting there doing nothing, and the guy who used to run the studio from a guy called Mike O'Donnell, I called one day and I said, look, you know, I need to demo some songs. I don't really want to go to London. You know, any chance of using the studio? So um, he, I think he spoke to Ringo, and he said, yeah, sure. So anyway, I went in and did what? Various amounts of work over the months in that place. And obviously I'd met Ringo a few times and over the years when I worked on the kids' television series, 
he did his narration there. So it's all, you know, it, we became, you know, I wouldn't say we were friends, but I, I would see him every now and again and his wife, Barbara, and, you know, that was it. But anyway, his son, Zach's 21st birthday party, my wife, Susan, and I were invited along to the party. We knew Zach growing up and he's a lovely guy, great musician and still is. So we were invited and it was the house had this beautiful Tudor lodge within the grounds that they had um, interconnected through a tunnel to a sort of marquee where there was a band and dancing. And um, so to get from the dance hall into the Tudor lodge where the bar was, you had to walk through this tunnel. So I walked through the tunnel to get a drink with uh, Martin Adam, who was the engineer, studio engineer there. And we we're just walking through and I walked bang straight into Paul and Linda, who had just arrived um, with her two daughters, I think um, Mary and, um, yeah, it was, I think it was Mary and Stella. It could have been Mary and Heather. But anyway, I was actually dumbfounded because, they were, you know, we had seen them over the years. I just walked straight into them. So he looked at me and he sort of said, how are you doing? I said, yeah, great. Nice to see you, but that was it. So, of course, I get overexcited. I do anyway at parties. So I had a few swallies, as they say, in Glasgow and, and danced a lot in the evening. And eventually we were sitting in this marquee when things were calming down and, and just sort of sitting there and Paul decides to do the room. So he's sort of walking around all the tables and I saw him looking at me. So he came over and he sort of put his hand out and said, it's really great to see you again. We're all here, aren't we? Because I think we had the Hoover there and some of the faces and various other ones. And I said to him, isn't it just Paul? And of course, I was three sheets to the wind, but I can remember the story. And I said to him, isn't it just? I said, um, but in actual fact, we've never actually met. So he said to me, what do you mean we've never met? He said, um, I wrote your song. And I don't know what made me say it. I said, yeah, I know you did. And thank God you did, because you paid for half of my house. <laughs> and a lot of people seem to think that's me. And he really roared and laughed and said, well, yeah, but what a terrible thing to say. But as I said, the story has become synonymous with my meeting. But it's, it was, you know, other people find it very funny, but I find it quite embarrassing. And the next time I see him, I shall certainly apologise. <laughs> Desmond and Molly Jones. Up 
Marmalade release was Baby Make It Soon, so a Tony McCauley song, another top ten record, and, and a great arrangement as well by Keith Mansfield. Absolutely. Um, Tony, again, was something else as a songwriter. I mean, uh, he's just, he churned out quality, quality songs, and we heard that, and uh, we, again, especially coming off the success of the previous singles and and Obladiel, we Peter Walsh worked us to the ground, you know what I mean? We were here, there, and everywhere. So we liked the song and we recorded it and it was a you know a big hit, certainly a big radio hit and um you know it was a really I think it's a really good record. In fact there's very few of our records. I know this probably sounds a bit pompous, but very few that I'm I'm not very pleased with. And this certainly wasn't one of them. I thought it was a really, really good record. But what happened is that after Baby Make It Soon, we were entering that phase I previously mentioned about the you know the CBS contract coming to an end. So we actually recorded the next song we recorded. I had found it, I think, Campbell Canelli, who were a music publisher, and it was um, a song called Butterfly. Oh. It was written by the Gibb Brothers, very early Gibb Brothers, and the demo is very basic, but I always really fancied the song. So we recorded that as, as part of the last batch of our CBS recordings, and CBS had this, you know, they had three or four tracks in the can when you know the proverbial hit the fan in terms of contractual agreement and dick Rowe came in for us and off we went so um just to remind you that butterfly had been recorded keith mansfield orchestration again um and um that was in the can sitting at cbs who were very bitter about having lost us
When we went to Decca, I remember sitting in the Starlight offices with Dick Rowe and the band obviously were there and uh, Peter Walsh, our manager, and saying, yep, you know, you can have as much studio time as you like. So we weren't restricted to three hours, you know what I mean, to record two or three titles you can have. You know, just make sure whatever it is you do is productive and it comes up, you know, good. Um And I, I remember distinctly saying to Dick at the time, I always got on really well with my system, so... We won't have pressure. He said, no, nope, you have no pressure from us, providing you come up with the goods. So, um, right, that was it. Contract signed, blaze of publicity all over the music press, you know. Rumours going around the industry, CBS saying they'll never get their money back from them. That's just ridiculous. They're a pop band, you know what I mean? And um, so the first se- the first sessions were booked at Studio 2 at Decca in West Hampstead, 1969 just coming up September, October. So the, the thing is that now you want all this freedom, so you've got it. So what are you going to do? Come on, kid, what are you going to do? James Taylor was mm. Caroline on my mind. He was unknown at the time and just recorded at Apple. I mean, a couple of other little ideas that, you know, songs that we had of our own. And then I got panicky because I thought we were going in because in the studio, I was certainly, if you like, the, the leader of things to push every, everything and everybody along and I thought we need something special and I literally the day before the session I am um, I was driving back in my little car and um, I used to have a little cassette player which I used to just press the record button on just for ideas and between that journey back from um, from London to my place in North Finchley I'd come up with an idea and that evening I, f- I finished um, Reflections on My Life in terms of the music, certainly, and the lyrics for the choruses. So um, I went in the following day. The boys were expecting to record Caroline on My Mind and the other tracks I mentioned. And I said, oh, you know, I've got this other one. So we nailed it. We put it down. And while we were doing it, I said to Dean, do something with the verses. And he was in a little side room scribbling like their head teacher from childhood death so um and that was basically how it came together and um we knew even then that we had something that was a bit different and a bit special because it's a funny thing everything becomes very quiet nobody says anything nobody like the road crew nothing it's just so and we got on with it and over the couple of days and then i called um keith because I was, if you like, producer on it. Mike Smith had gone because he was still with CBS. And I called Keith Mansu and I said, Keith, we've got this song. I can get you a demo. Um, we need to put some brass into it. No, Junior, I don't have time. I don't. I'm just working on an album with Selena Jones, a jazz album. I said, Keith, you've got to help us out in this. So anyway, I took the, the Bakelite white demo around to KPM Studios in the basement. Keith could give me something like 20 minutes just to talk it through. So I played it. And he said, okay, leave it with me. And uh, he went off and wrote that beautiful brass and string arrangement. So he came in, uh, did 
Decca booked the session, the London Philharmonic players to come in. They came in on the Sunday and then uh, we mixed it. And for all my bravado, I knew we had something that was special. And um, for all my bravado, I still, from my dummy tit in my mouth, called Mike Smith, who was still with CBS. I called him at his house out in Essex and I said, Mike, I think I've got something here, but you know, I need your help. Can you just sort of just sit? He said, I'll be there. And he came in that Sunday and he came into London and he just sat at the back of the studio just for me. And that it was like having, um, you know, your favourite blanket when you're a kid. Do you know what I mean? And um, he was so gracious, and I never forgot it. And um, he, um, he, I just, we, Pete Rinson and I, um, who was the deck engineer, we we mixed the song, and everybody was actually blown away by the whole thing. Especially I got Dean. I thought we need some ad libs on this, you know, between in the choruses, get out there and sing so. <laughs> So he did, and he's just unbelievable performer. So anyway, we got it all mixed. And that that afternoon, um, Dick came into the studio with his son. And uh, Dick was a lovely guy, and he used to smoke a pipe. He was the guy who infamously um, turned the Beatles down at Decca, which isn't true. It was actually Mike Smith, because he, he, Mike didn't think they were very good. And also, they could only sign one band, and his pals, the Tremors, came from the same area in Essex as him, so he signed them instead. Brian Poole and the Tremors. But again, that's another story. So Dick comes into the studio, and we played it through. And you know when you get is it, the last elements of the fade just disappear, and Dick says... Fantastic. He said, that sounds to me like a big, big hit. And, you know, when you're on the top of the world, you feel like just no better feeling. But then he quickly says, um, it's a bit long, though. I think you should take the guitar solo out. What? He said, I think you should take the guitar solo out because it's making it too long. It's <laughs> What's the length of the record, Pete? Pete says, something like, I don't know what it is, 407? No, no, no. You've got to bring that back. That will bring it back for radio play. So again, silence in the room, and it was one of them moments. So I said, I reminded Dick, I said, remember, Dick, I said to you, when we signed, you you were going to give us full independence to do whatever we wanted to do. He said, that's exactly right. And I reminded him, and you also said there would be no pressure, provided we come up with the goods. So he just smiled at me and said, yep, you're right. The guitar solo stays. And it just adds that extra touch, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all part of the song, isn't it? It's all part, it's not the song, it's all part of that record. And um, without it, I don't know what it would have been like, do you know what I mean? But anyway, it's, it's, it's a true story and, and that's absolute fact.
again, let's go back to Butterfly. I'm trying to get the chronology. Yeah. yeah. What happened is that um, when um, Decca released Reflections of My Life, CBS still had the pin. They still thought, my God. So they released Butterfly at exactly the same time. So we had two singles released and two different labels running concurrently, which is a real, real shame because um, Butterfly was a really, really good record. And, um, you know, listen, my song, Reflections, is my song. and I obviously have my preferences, but Butterfly, I think, would have done very well anyway. But the funny thing is that when we... Um, there was a huge thing that I'd never even thought about until a couple of years ago. We, when we did... Um, Reflections for Top of the Pops, what you used to do is you go in there in the afternoon for a, what was called a camera rehearsal. Um, because at that time, it was all pre-recorded. The, the, live, the live shows had stopped, so it was pre-recorded and it was put out on the Thursday night, whatever it was. So what you would do is you go in the morning for the camera rehearsals and um, you know, so the cameraman could work around where they were going to shoot and here, there and everywhere and the director and everything else and the various links and running order. So we were in there, and um, after our slot had been called and we'd done it, what do we normally do? We go back to the bar, the BBC bar, where no one's allowed in there unless you're a member of the BBC or you're an artiste. Hmm. So we're sitting, in the, it was about five o'clock, two hours before the show, and um, we're sitting in the bar having a drink. And who walks into the bar but um, Barry and Morris Gibb? Oh. So they come in. And uh, they walk straight over to us. Barry puts his hand out. Congratulations. He said, it's a really, really great record. So we were sort of astounded. So thanks so much. That's very generous of you. How are you doing? That was it. And, you know, it only occurred to me a couple of years ago, maybe he was talking about Butterfly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So um, I've never had a chance to ask him, but I would like to... Mom. 
So Rainbow was the follow-up. Correct. Uh, that was, it was a few months again, working, working, working. And um, again, uh, it was just a, an idea, again, that I had come up with. Um, because then it was very much into the what they used to call the soft rock era, where Crosby, Stills and Nash and uh, James Taylor was big and, you know, all them sorts of sounds. And um, I, I don't know why, but I just came up with this idea for Rainbow. And um, I, pl- I had the chorus and uh, I said to Dean, we need a, a really different sort of lyric, to which, you know, he wrote for the verses. We went into um, studio number one at Decca, uh, and it was a real basic recording. There was actually nothing on it. It was only acoustic guitar, bass, drums, but not really, just brushes and the bass drum. It had a wee bit of percussion, nothing much, and, and Dean playing the muthi, the harmonica. So we recorded that, layered the harmonies up. Um, again, everybody's saying, brilliant, great record, fantastic. But again, at the last minute, I got the heebie-jeebies about it. I thought, I'm not sure this is strong enough. And um, Dean was very friendly then with um, Terry Sylvester, who was with the Hollies. And um, he took the um, the white label demo of our, our Rainbow round one night, obviously very close to the sessions, and said, listen, this is the new single. He said, but Junior's really very concerned about it. He's not sure if it's strong enough. So he played it. And apparently Terry had said to me, listen, are you nuts? That's going to be a big hit. And it was. I think it got to number three in the UK and it did really well in South America and all over the world, although not as well in America as Reflections had done. But it's, uh, it's one of my favourites, actually. Have you heard the uh, Silla Black version? Yes, I have. Yeah, I remember at the time. It's funny because artists like Silla at that time are very mainstream and straight and it's a bit like... Um, I don't know what it's like. It's a bit like Kiri Takanawa, the soprano singing music from the West Side Story. It's all the right notes in all the right places, but does it work? I'm not sure. No, but I'm listening to anyone who records any one of my songs, not least of all someone in the stature of Scylla, uh, who made some fantastic records, uh, which I have on my playlist at home. Uh, it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. That was produced by George Martin, of course. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, Claude Rogers recorded another one of my songs, oh. Carolina, a song called Carolina Days, which I recorded for an album, and Keith Mansfield produced it and arranged it for her, which it all goes round. It's like karma, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It all goes round in a big circle. But, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very privileged and very proud to have had these sort of things happen to me in my life. It's, it's nice. Or even feel the ground A pot of gold 
final track of the first part of this podcast closes with marmalade again and can you help me but um that kind of shows where the band was at really you were talking about crosby stills nash earlier that's a chance for you to really branch out well yeah because um again what had happened is that you know the in total contrast to the CBS scenario, we'd made Decca so much money that they wanted to give us every freedom going. They were prepared to lock down studios here, there and everywhere to just let us get on with it. And um, there was a few of the, the final recordings we did. Um, one, the, the last single was a song called My Little One, which Dean had written about his newborn daughter, uh, which is a lovely record with a terrific B-side, which hopefully we can talk about perhaps later on. And um, Can You Help Me was one of the songs in the session. Amongst others, there was another one called Empty Bottles, which was very similar. And we spent a lot of time. I mean, Can You Help Me is quite a long record, as was the time. Do you know what I mean? When you did things for an album, they, they almost turned into mini concepts. So, you know, you had to produce. And it was time for the band to really mature and really show what they could do. And uh, so we made that recording and it was, you know, I, th- I still think it's absolutely superb. The only slight problem being is that I woke up one day very shortly afterwards and thought, actually, I think I've had enough. I think I want to do other things. So um, I left the band and um, Can You Help Me went into storage and wasn't really discovered until I raided the uh, Decca archive way back in probably 25 years later. At, uh, in the late 90s I found it and I thought this should be out there as should Empty Bottles and they both are now Absolutely Well that was uh, the uh, 
the end of the first part of, of this podcast. And uh, so let's play Can You Help Help Me, which sees the end of, of the Marmalade era for Junior. But um, we'll be back with part two um, very soon. Bye-bye.
thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.